And good morning to you all. I'm Dave Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be your preacher for the next uh, 35 minutes. We're in a series on what we call the followers, the followers of Jesus Christ. And this morning we bring ourselves all the way to the followers that we know as the shepherds. We want to focus on who those shepherds are and the uh, emphasis of their ministry to little baby Jesus when baby Jesus was being born and how God ministered through them. Let me read uh, the text. It was read so well already by Lauren. Uh, Let me review it for us. And you have an outline that I encourage you to use to follow along if you'd like to in terms of some of the points that we want to be making. So in Luke chapter 2, this is the great birth scene of the baby Jesus. It says in Luke 2 that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, a great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into the heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. And this morning we'd like to focus on the shepherds. And one of the things that really struck my attention about the shepherds is their faithfulness. Faithfulness to what God called them to do, faithfulness to the little that they knew, and they responded. And I want us to be people who are as faithful as they were. One of the ways to set that up is I think about it this last week and wrote about it in the email this last week. Time Magazine, People of the Year, were the Ebola fighters. It was great. I was really encouraged by the article because in that article was this uh, Dr. Kent Brantley and Nurse Wrightbrow that um, you hopefully have heard about. Uh, They're good, evangelical, committed Christians, followers of Jesus Christ as well. And what strikes me about the story is that they went over there to serve the people who have Ebola in Liberia before anybody knew that there was a problem in Liberia with people in Ebola. At least most of us were completely unaware of it. They went with no fanfare. There was no applause. They just went and they just wanted to serve. They were just being faithful to what God had called them to do. And they ministered to those people and hopefully some of them are still alive. But then they contracted Ebola, as you might recall. 
and they had special conditions where they brought them back to the States. God blessed them with a healing, miraculous healing, I think, in so many ways. And what strikes me about them is that we would never have heard about these people, Kent Brantley and Nancy, but for the fact that they got Ebola. Otherwise, they'd be anonymous people that just went, served, and at some point came home. I love that God uses His people, and sometimes He puts them through really strenuous and challenging and suffering conditions so that somehow the magnification, the glorification of Jesus Christ becomes preeminent, even to the point where now they're plastered on the front of Time magazine because of the good works that they have done. As I quoted in the article in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave us the great commandment in this uh, uh, Beatitudes message. He says, I want you to go out there and do good works so that your good works will glorify God. That's what's happened to them. That kind of faithfulness is what I want to see within the life of the shepherds. And so we want to challenge ourselves to be faithful. And some of the conditions that you are aware of in this passage are these. There are three areas we're going to look at. Be faithful because the will of God is working. Be faithful because the work of God through Christ. Be faithful so that we can worship God in response. So those are the outline. That's the outline. This is where we would like to go. The will of God. The will of God is in control of the people and the circumstances that surround us. Whether in Liberia with Ebola or in the Orange County with each of our situations, whatever we may be living in. Because notice the text again. It says this. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Caesar Augustus lived something like 27 B.C. to about 14 A.D. That was his span of leadership. So it's in that period of time that we see the census being taken. Every 14 years they would have a census. The reason the government had a census in those days is the reason the government has a census today. What's the number one reason why the government wants to make sure they count everybody in the world? What's the number one reason? Taxes. Taxes. And so nothing is new under the sun for the last 2,000 years. Government never has enough money. So they wanted to tax Mary and Joseph. This impoverished little couple that has absolutely nothing. But they wanted their whatever little bit they could get out of them. And so Caesar Augustus has a census that is coming up. And it goes on to say this in the text. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Little uh, little inside baseball. He was about 6, 7 A.D. And so we think it's some sort of a census before that because this is not consistent with when we believe that Jesus was born. Herod, that we read about in Matthew 2, who massacred the babies in, in the city... Uh, he was done about 4 B.C. So Jesus is probably born somewhere between 4 B.C. So just some little tidbits that sometimes will come up. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So Joseph and Mary, Joseph had to go back to the city of Bethlehem. That was his place to register. And so Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. Of course, that's where the angel came and made the announcement to them. To Judea, the southern part of the country, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, often interpreted as meaning a bread of house, house of bread. And because he was of the house of the family of David, both Mary and and Joseph. Joseph's genealogy in Matthew 1 comes from David. Mary's genealogy in Luke comes from David. So they both have that heritage that comes here in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and with child. Here's a map that shows about 80 miles. 
Here's Mary pregnant. We don't know how many months pregnant, maybe six, seven months pregnant. Can you imagine if uh, you have been married and you have had a child, that you are pregnant, if you're a woman, if you're pregnant and maybe you're seven months pregnant, and then Governor Brown says, I'm going to take a census, and if you grew up in Palm Springs, you need to walk from Orange County to Palm Springs to register. That's essentially what is being asked of her. They didn't have cars, as you might well know. They probably didn't have a chariot. Maybe they had a donkey. More likely they were on foot. Walking with a seven-month pregnant, engaged woman from here to Palm Springs. That is just beyond what I can ever fathom. But that's what was being asked of them. And this is all under the banner of God's will being accomplished. So we want to touch on. And so what we see in this particular storyline is this. The will of God is controlling people and circumstances. And number one thing that I see about God's will being controlled, He rules over people and power. He's ruling over Caesar Augustus. He is ruling over Quirinius. He is ruling over Herod. It doesn't always look like it. In fact, I put on the back of the outline, I encourage you to take a look at that, because occasionally there are things that you might find helpful. But on the back of the outline, I noted some of the ways that God has controlled in the history of mankind. If you go all the way back to Second Chronicles 36, I put the whole text on there. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which is the land we call Iran today, the Persian people, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent out a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord God be with him and let him go up. That's like God coming to the nutty guy who is in control of Iran today. And that guy saying, you know what? I had a dream last night. God put it on my heart. And I think we should help the Jews build a new temple on the Temple Mount right near the mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Now that would never happen. But that's essentially what God did. God ruled over this Persian leader and caused him to pay for a brand new temple that was to be built there on the Temple Mount that many of us like to go visit on tour. In Ezra we read this, And they observed the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. God turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God did that. It's like God going to uh, the leader of Syria and saying, I want you to encourage the Jews down there in Jerusalem. So he stirs their heart to bring some goodwill encouragement to the nation of Israel or to the head of the Palestine Authority, Hamas, to come and be encouraged to encourage the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Go ahead, build your settlements wherever you want. This land is your land. It's not my land. That is the miracle of what God can do. 
He doesn't always choose to do it, but he has the power to do it. And we want to reaffirm that God is glorified by the use of his power. And God is using the powers of the world in those days so that he could move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Why does he do that? Because he rules according to his word. The Word of God, we need to understand the Word of God so we understand the will of God because He always is consistent with the Word of God. God had given a prophecy five, 700 years before Mary and Joseph were even alive. And He said this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that was the old name for Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you. One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." God prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. How does God get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, 80 miles to the north, down into Bethlehem? He commissions a census. And that census of that 14-year span finally lands the time when Mary is pregnant. And so Mary and Joseph travel on foot to get to Bethlehem where she gives birth and that fulfills the Word of God. When God speaks, His Word is always true. The more you and I know God's Word, the more we'll understand God's will. It's essential to be a student of God's Word so we understand that. And then the last thing I notice about this, God's will controlling all things, I need to be faithful even when His will seems chaotic and confusing. If you notice what happens to Mary and Joseph as they are traveling that 80-mile journey with a pregnant woman, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the, uh, for them in the inn. There was no room for them in the inn. If God knew 700 years before that Mary was going to give birth in Bethlehem, on that day, I would have thought he could have called Expedia and made sure there was a reservation waiting for them. Wouldn't you have thought that uh, the first inn that they go to, such as the inns were in those days, it's not like Motel 6, but wherever they would have gone, they would have knocked on the door. This is what I would have imagined. They would have knocked on somebody's door. My wife was pregnant. She's soon to give birth. Do you have a room for us to stay in? And that person in that room would have said to them, this is what I would have thought, that person would have said, my goodness, we were expecting someone else, but they canceled the reservation, and now the room is available for you. What an amazing coincidence that we finally had a room available after always being booked up because of the census. Everybody's coming into town, but this person canceled just in time, and amazingly, we have a room for you. See, that would have been the testimony. Isn't it a miracle that we arrived and there just happened to be a cancellation for us? That's how we operate. We, we expect these sort of these last-minute little miracle things that, oh, God is so good to us and uh, He turns everything to good. Romans 8, 28, we quote that verse a lot. But in this case, they came there and there was no room. There was no reservation. There was no last-minute miracle. There was no convenient way for her to be cared for. They had literally nothing. And so they were faithful, even when His will seems chaotic and confusing. Sometimes God's will, He rules over Caesar Augustus. He rules over Cyrus, king of Persia. He rules over the Assyrian king in Ezra. But He can't make a reservation for the baby Jesus. Sometimes God does those things. 
because he wants to test my faithfulness. I, I was reading about uh, just this last week a missionary. Her name is Annetta. And she's married, has a family of five kids. And they went overseas into Europe to serve the Lord. And while she was over there, Annetta uh, was discovered to have a tumor on her spine. And so they did surgery on her spine to remove that tumor. And they took the tumor off, but tragically, as a result of the surgery, she became a, a quadriplegic. And so she's paralyzed from her neck down. She went over there to serve the Lord. And as a result, they had to return home. And they could no longer fulfill the ministry that they had been trained and called and sent out to do. And so she's back in the United States. And it was a devastating blow to them and to her trying to mother five kids now in that condition. And she, point, she came to a point of a crisis. And she said, I, I decided to have three options at this point. Option number one, I'm going to take my life. Option number two, she said, I'm going to, become, I'm going to give up on God and just become drug-induced and just be a zombie by all the pain medication. Or number three, I'm going to say, God, what are you up to in this thing? Turn to the Lord. And here I want to read to you what she said about this response that she finally decided to make. Because sometimes God's will is confusing and chaotic. And here's what Annetta said. She says, I chose the third to turn to the Lord. And as I began slowly reading the Bible again through the lens of pain and suffering, what I saw was a God who was familiar with both. I thought my pain and suffering had taken me to a place where God could never be found. But instead, it was a place where He, God, became more real to me than I had ever known Him to be. And when we turn to the Lord and His will and remain faithful to His calling, that in the midst of confusing and chaotic conditions, God reveals Himself all the more. It's a miracle what God does is that when He finds faithful people like the shepherds, faithful people like Dr. Kent Brantley, faithful people like Annette, that He reveals Himself all the more. Because we have a choice to constantly make every day. Am I going to use this chaotic, confusing condition where I, think, I thought God was in charge but it doesn't seem like He's in charge right now because there was no room in the inn or whatever my situation may be? I can choose to either turn from God or turn to God and let God reveal Himself to me. Faithfulness is the calling. I love this little thing. Sometimes we, we don't do well with our attitudes when life is confusing and chaotic. And that's why I love this little, little saying from this little book called, Lord, If I Ever Needed You. It's now by Creeth Davis. Here's just a little contrast. Some of us are resigned to it and some of us accept it by faith. Resignation is a surrender to fate. Acceptance is a surrender to God. Resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet the God who fills it like a net did. Resignation says, I can't. Acceptance says, but God can Resignation paralyzes the life process. Acceptance releases the process for its greatest creativity. Resignation says it's all over for me. Acceptance says, now that I'm here, what's next, Lord? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way will you use this mess, Lord? And that's where Mary and Joseph are. That's where the shepherds will be. That's where Annette was. That's where Kent Brantley was. That's where Nancy Wrightbull, the nurse, was. 
They all had this spirit of acceptance and faithfulness to pursue the will of God, even though God's will allowed this confusing and chaotic conditions. He can control the powers of nations, but sometimes he doesn't, I don't feel like he's controlling the little details of my life where there are hardships and suffering. Faithfulness is the test. We also see this about being faithful. Be faithful because the work of God is accomplished through Christ. It's not through me. It's not something special about me. It's what God chooses to do through me. And I love some of these conditions that we read about. Here's how God works. God works through insignificant but faithful people. He loves to find the little shepherds in the field watching over the flock by night. So it says in the same region there were some shepherds staying out of the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. There's kind of an interesting thing about these shepherds, and I don't know what the facts are. All I know is what the speculation is. And here's the speculation. Let me climb out on a little bit of a limb. It is thought that these shepherds who were out in this Bethlehem surrounding area were shepherds who were keeping watch over lambs that were being prepared for the temple as a sacrificial lamb. And the, of course, the storyline is it's a beautiful thing that the shepherds who were watching over the sacrificial lambs were the shepherds who came to look at the true Lamb of God. Whether they were the shepherd, the temple shepherds, we don't know, but it's an interesting speculative thought. But the next thing we notice this. He works in spite of the poor conditions and appearances. You will find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. Why is that a sign to these shepherds? Here's a speculation. Let me climb a little bit further out on that limb. I'm only halfway out right now. I'm going to go all the way to the end. And some of you want to cut it off. You're welcome to do that. But here's another speculation. Here's some other stuff I've read this last week. And I don't know whether it's true, but it's fascinating. And I want to be able to say this now because if some of you go to heaven and you learn this and it's true, you're going to ask, why didn't Dave ever tell me about that? Well, I want you to be in the end No. And here's one of the fascinating things that I read about that may or may not be true. So this is not scripture. This is just Dave's speculative opinion on the far end of the branch. It has been said of the shepherds that were out there in the field watching over their flock by gnat that they may have been sacrificial lambs prepared for temple worship. It has also been said by some, and you can read about this online, and so therefore you know it's true, that the lamb that they would prepare that was born was born this Migdal Edar, which is the tower of the flock. You read about the tower of the flock in Micah 4. You read about the tower of the flock in Genesis 35. The tower of the flock, the place where they would come and the sheep would give birth to the lamb. And then only a perfect lamb was suitable for temple worship, as Jesus is the perfect lamb suitable for our sacrifice. And so what the shepherds would do to protect the lamb so the lamb would become, be perfect until the day that that sacrificial lamb was brought to the altar is that they would wrap the lamb in swaddling clothes to protect that lamb and then present that lamb at a future day. Mary took these wraps and they wrapped the baby Jesus so his arms and his legs would be protected, be straight, and be cared for. Often poor people would not even wrap the baby because they had no clothes and they would run around little naked bodies all over the place. And so some people believe that they actually had people gifting them clothes because it's a unique thing. And then for the shepherds to come and say, I'm looking for a baby that's wrapped in swaddling clothes, but the crazy thing that I don't quite understand the shepherds would say to themselves 
is that why is that lamb laying in one of our mangers? We don't expect to see baby Jesus as the Lamb of God laying in a manger. If He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as the angels are announcing to me, then why isn't He in some palace? And so the angel said, look for Him. Here is the sign, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That makes no sense. Certainly not to a shepherd. Here is where, in fact, in the scene that we just saw that was played out in the song Noel, we believe that they were actually living in a cave. Here is somebody that looks familiar to you in a cave in Israel. And you can see the darkened uh, ceiling where the shepherds would come and live and bring their lambs and their sheep in there. And they had a fire in that particular cave. It could have been a cave like this that's right outside of, of Bethlehem. That's where they would have gone. And when they came, they would bring that little baby Jesus and put him in a manger. The manger is not a wooden thing where the cross is on the end and there's a little bunch of hay in the there's lots of rocks in Israel. We believe that Jesus was a stonemasonry. And so what they would do is they would take a stone and they would carve out of it this rut. And that would create what they call a manger. And this is a manger that was outside of Bethlehem. And they would put water in it. They would put feed in it. Can you imagine taking your firstborn child and putting them in this antiseptically clear manger? It's just incredible. There's been all sorts of slobber and spit and who knows what bacteria that's been laying in that manger. And she puts Jesus in it. And so what we see is that things are not always what they appear to be. Now I'd like to take a little break and I need a, I need a young child to assist me, to help us to make the point maybe even clearer yet. So somebody like elementary age would like to come up here and be up front Okay, yes. You want to come on up here? Come on up. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, you come on. No, it's, that's fine. You are, as I recall, Reagan. All right, that's a nice name. Are you named after Ronald Reagan? Ooh. We like Reagan here. And you, we like you too. What school do you go to, Reagan? Here. Here at Calvary Christian School? All right, how are your grades? Uh, really? Don't answer it. No, I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're good. We wouldn't have you up otherwise. You want to hold that microphone? All right. I'd like for you to assist me. I, I have something in here I want to show you. And uh, I'm going to open this up. Are you afraid of snakes? Oh, good. Because there's no snakes in here. That was a joke. It didn't go over very well. I've got a couple of rocks here. I'd like for you to tell me which rock do you think is the prettiest rock? In fact, I've got them on the... Here's one rock. So you can see it. Isn't that a beautiful rock? Mm-hmm. You could carve one of those things out and make a beautiful uh, ring or a necklace or something like that. Wouldn't that be nice? And then here's this rock. It's green. Which rock do you think... Let me put them... I need another hand. There we go. Which rock do you think is the prettier rock or the nicer rock, the more valuable rock? That one. You bet. Good choice. Good choice. She chose the one that's the purple one up there. Would you all agree as you look on the screen there that the purple one looks a little more glamorous? Thank you. Thank you. Your cooperation. Yeah, I would have said that too. But you know what I discovered? These are rocks that come from Bill Rowley. So he lost his rocks for us this morning here. You've got to work with me here a little bit. So... He loaned this, and what I discovered, this is like some sort of a quartz rock that is uh, 
very cheap and inexpensive and really not worth very much, even though it's so much prettier. But then this rock, notice this rock. Inside this rock, can you see those little red spots? Mm-hmm. If you take a, a chisel and you chisel out those red spots, those are rubies. You ever heard of a ruby? You ever had a ruby ring? No? Maybe this Christmas, huh? <laughs> but uh, you chisel out the little red spots. You can barely see the red spots there. They're kind of a little indented area there on the screen. You chisel out those rubies. Those rubies could be cost tens of thousands of dollars. But they're disguised in here. So that's a beautiful rock, but we don't see the value because it looks so ordinary on the outside. So thank you, Reagan. You know what? I'd like to give you something. I'd like to give you a ruby rock, but I can't. But I'll give you one of the crystal rocks. And then in addition to that, because I'm such a generous guy, I'd like to give you a gift certificate to our bookstore so you can go buy yourself something nice. Or you can get a, a, a cafe latte with lots of sugar and lots of caffeine. You won't sleep until Christmas. So whatever you like to do. All right. So take that. Thank you, Reagan, for coming up here and helping me. What struck me about this is Bill's explaining it to me, these little red dots that you can't probably see very well on the screen, but they are on the rock, trust me, rubies. And he said what it takes and what they will do in Tanzania where this came from is you need to take a chisel and you need to carve it out, you need to cut it out, you need to sharpen it and then polish it and turn it into something special as you cut it into a ruby. Now, that's a beautiful picture. When Jesus was born, he lay in that manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was like this rock. But until Christ was cut and broken on that cross and sacrificed for us, and God came and polished him up and the resurrected of Jesus Christ, we don't really see the value. And there's a lot of people look at Jesus and see him as just this. And what they're really looking for in life is something glamorous, something like this, purple rock. They like the glamour today. They don't want to take the time to carve it out. And it's fleeting. It's lifeless. It doesn't last. And when Jesus Christ came to this world, He came to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And that's why the work of God is accomplished through Jesus Christ and His salvation is care in our lives. Notice the description that is found in the text about Jesus. That fully is giving evidence to that Jesus is God. He was born in the city of David at a kingly heritage because it was prophesied he would be born in Bethlehem. He is called Christ, which means Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is a kingly anointed place. He is called Lord by the uh, angels. That means he has a kingly nature to rule over all. He is Lord God and he is Savior. He has come to save us from our sins. So Jesus is God because he comes with that kind of heritage and that kind of standing before each of us. But he's also a man. Jesus came in human flesh to be like us, but sinless. He has our feelings, but sinless. He wore the wrapped in swaddling clothes to show that he has human nature, that he needs warmth, he needs protection, he needs care, he needs comfort. He was born in a manger, a human condition of dirty, homeless, filthy, poor, desperate, the world in which you and I live. Jesus Christ came to accomplish for us what we couldn't accomplish on our own, fully God, fully man. So as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not what we do. It's not the glamour and the glance of what we do. We cannot earn our salvation. It is a gift of God. 
It's not a result of works. I don't care how many good things you and I do, we'll never be saved by our good works. It's not a result of works because everybody would be boasting about what good things I do. But I don't want God to determine things by how good we do things because we're never going to be as good as we need to be. For we are His workmanship. God loves to create within us to carve out the rubies that are in us value. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. So Jesus Christ came to this world to offer to us salvation. And it comes only through Jesus Christ Himself. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, He will save you. If you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not saved. There is only one way to go to heaven. Jesus says, for uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father but through me. So I want to encourage us. Be faithful to the truth of God's Word and His work that it's Christ alone that saves us. Not my works, not my good deeds, not going to church, not giving to the offering. It's Jesus. I either trust in Jesus and I'm on my way to heaven and living a better life on earth or I'm not trusting in Jesus and I'm going to hell. And I may live an okay life on earth, frankly, but God wants to save all who would trust in Him. And so He comes to us through His will, through His work, so that we can worship Him in response. Here's what the angels said. And the angels had gone away from them into heaven. And the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem. Notice how immediate their faithfulness was. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord had made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in this filthy, stinking manger that they may have used themselves as they would take their sheep from pasture to pasture. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ and he has come to save the people from their sins. And Mary and Joseph are hearing this and all who heard it wonder the things which are told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things pondering them in her heart. I love that image of Mary as she's absorbing it. They didn't have Instagram in those days, but she had a brain. She had a mind. She had a memory. And she stored up these beautiful truths that God was giving to them from no less a shepherd that were undependable and unbelievable and the despised class of the society. But here she hears from shepherds some of the greatest truths that we'd ever hear in our lives. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. And so they came to praise and worship Jesus. I love the faithfulness of these shepherds. They came under the will of God to control His people and circumstances. They came in the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ, not their own good deeds, faithfulness going to the manger scene. No, it was what Jesus was doing that counted the most so that they could come now and worship God. I'd like for us to worship God. I'm going to invite you to do something for just a moment now. Like Mary, where Mary treasured all these things in her heart, pondering them. The word ponder means to, literally means to throw together something. So she's throwing together all these facts and all these storylines, the angels and the miracle of all that is taking place, a virgin birth. It's just incredible. She's pondering all that. Would you take a moment, maybe on the outline or maybe in Luke chapter 2, and just ponder, before we go to Christmas this week, ponder, what are those good things that God is doing in your life? So just take a moment now and ponder what those miracles of the birth of Jesus and your life today,
that you can recount that God is doing for you. So just ponder for just a moment.